make our way to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter number 8, chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verse 10 down through verse number 15, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10 down through verse 15, we're continuing our uh, exposition, our study through the book, and uh, we're going to uh, look at these verses, and I've titled the message, All Will Be Well in the End, All Will Be Well in the End, and I think that's a great prospect for us to consider uh, as Christians, especially as we've been viewing life under the sun from Solomon's perspective, and really we can see a lot of what he sees in our world, that uh, the world is the same, right? Uh, A lot of the things that we evaluate, and so chapter 8, verse number 10, down through verse 15, notice that he says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does, not, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." Have you ever wondered about something or a situation, you ever looked at something and thought, well, how in the world is that going to end? How's the conclusion ever going to be right about that? You know, we sometimes uh, see and experience many things in life that seem to leave us scratching our heads because we don't really see the big picture. We don't see how something's going to come to a conclusion. We get burdened by things that happen that just aren't right or Maybe we see things that should have happened differently in our minds, and the reason these things, the reason this happens in our thinking is because we don't immediately see the outcome, and that's part of life. That's part of our human nature. That's part of the world in which we live in, and I liken this a little bit maybe to to watching a movie in a sense, if you could let me use that illustration. In a movie, you're watching a story unfold that has many things from the beginning all the way to the end and all through the middle and sometimes through movies that kind of they kind of get you guessing as to what the end's going to be and then there's some things that happen in the midst of a story of a movie and you're like what how in the world could this ever come like to a a good conclusion right uh one of my favorite moments experiencing that was a few years ago and you may not know what this is or you may i know coleman will uh, you know, the Avengers movies are really popular among, among the young people, and I consider myself among the young people. Um, I enjoy some of the superhero movies. Some of them are a little woke, so I don't like some of those. But uh, the Avengers movies were really good when they first came out, but they were building up to this, this big overarching story. And you had two, two movies that went back to back, really. They were released a year apart. And the first one was Avengers Infinity War. And it's your typical superhero movie, right? The bad guy comes in and he's doing all the bad stuff. And in a typical movie like this, the good guys beat the bad guy and then the good guys win, right? But at the end of this movie, the bad guys win. And so I remember the theater experience and everybody in the theater is like, what? 
what just happened? Because the movie ends on a cliffhanger, and you don't know how in the world are they going to come back from this. How in the world could this ever have a good ending? Well, they leave you on a cliffhanger, and then you've got to wait a whole year to see how it ends, right? I mean, that's just kind of torture uh, for, for, for if, you're, if you're glued to the story. Uh, but you watch the end, end of the movie and, and uh, the next movie, and you see how it all comes together. Well, I use that by way of illustration with life itself. You know, Solomon points out some things in this text that kind of show us the enigma or the puzzling reality of life. Things that happen in this world that seem to be out of balance, or we wonder, well, how could this possibly end well, or, or what is God doing in the world? That's, that's how a lot of people think. And the things we read here and see, we see them for ourselves in the world in which we live, and maybe you've thought some of the same questions of what's going on, but the beauty of what God's revealed to us, both by Solomon in this book, but also in the rest of Scripture, is that we as Christians, we do know how it all ends, don't we? Thank God for that. It's not a big question mark. We're not in the midst of a cliffhanger. We have, a, we have a picture of what the end is and what God's going to do uh, at the very end. And so uh, we see that in the Scriptures. But knowing God's revelation and that all is going to be well in the end, that also doesn't change the realities of what happens in the world. And that's where we see Solomon. He's observing the realities of life under the sun, and he gives us some hard realities Uh, And so some things that also prompt us to view life the right way, but also to live the right way. So notice with me uh, three points tonight from our text I want to bring to your attention. I pray they would kind of encourage us and help us to see some things. Notice with me, number one, I want you to see the conflict that Solomon sees. The conflict that Solomon sees. He's conflicted about what he sees. Oftentimes we're conflicted about what we see and experience. And there's three things I want to point out about what he sees. The first one is that wicked people are praised in this world. Wicked people are praised in this world. Now, now Solomon, in our previous text we looked at last week, he showed us the reality of authority in life from the sun. And specifically, he brings out kingly authority, an autocratic type of authority, because that's what they had in that day. It wasn't a democracy like we have today. And, uh, and in America, we're blessed with the government we have. But even with our government, what do we have? Authority that we're under and, and, and so we see he, he gives us the realities of authority, kingly authority that should be reverenced and obeyed with wisdom. He also pointed out that authority can be hard to endure uh, because of oppression and ungodliness in the king. Uh, but he also pointed out that thankfully, even the power and authority of a king is limited because he's not going to go past the barrier of death itself, right? And, and so doesn't matter how powerful a person is, they're still limited by death itself and life from the sun. So with all that in mind as the backdrop, he continues in what he saw with the powerful and the wicked. And he says in verse 10, notice he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. He just paused there for a moment. Then I saw the wicked buried. Okay? Let that sink in. Though the wicked may appear to be mighty and dangerous, they are simply men who die. They are simply people who are going to go to the grave. The wicked are not immortal in their mortality. And so it's the burial of the wicked here that prompts Solomon to gain some further insight about life under the sun. And like he said previously, I think it was a few chapters back, that 
Uh, funerals are a good thing because they cause us to consider life. They bring that reality to the forefront of our mind uh, about life and how short it is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached from this text on June 13th of 1858, and he said this in his message. He said, the sight of a funeral is a very healthful thing for the soul. And he's right about that. Funerals, uh, or simply death itself, reminds us that neither the righteous nor the wicked live forever in this world. And, and so we should be thankful about that, that men like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Osama bin Laden, they don't just get to continue forever in their wickedness, it comes to an end. And ultimately there's an end to all wickedness as we look at the end of all things. Uh, and so what we find with this is that with the wicked dying, we come to verse 10, Notice he observes, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Now, I want to note here that this particular verse uh, in the Hebrew, according to Hebrew scholars and commentators, it is the most difficult passage in the whole book of, uh, book of Ecclesiastes because it can mean one or two different things. He said, well, why is that? Well, because there's a difference in several of the manuscripts between one Hebrew letter and one word that are very similar. And I thought this was kind of interesting. But the difference in this one letter could either make the text say the wicked were praised or they were forgotten. So you'll find some translations will say they were forgotten. Some will say they were praised. And so there's difference of interpretation here on this verse. But I'll share with you, based on the context in my own opinion, I think it, Solomon is suggesting that injustice is taking place, not a rightful thing taking place. I think that's the theme here. So they were praised, meaning injustice is taking place. They're praised in their wickedness. That's what you see in the text. That's what you see in the world. Rather than rightful justice, which means they were forgotten. Now, I think both principles really are true because it is true that the name of the wicked often is forgotten and should be forgotten. Solomon says in Proverbs 10, 7, he says that principle, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. And so that just shows you the contrast there between the righteous and the wicked. But the point Solomon's making here overall is about an injustice on the part of the wicked, I think, which is reflected in they were praised. And many ancient translations follow that wording, including the uh, Septuagint. How many of us know what the Septuagint is? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This would have been the Bible that the disciples used and Jesus used in their day. Uh, so regardless, the principle and message here is Solomon, he's troubled and conflicted by the apparent prospering of the wicked, the injustice that he sees with the wicked. So how are the wicked praised uh, or prospered in this verse? Well, to begin with, you'll notice they, they have a proper burial. A, a proper burial was part of uh, the honorable, honorable treatment in ancient Israel, it's uh, to not have a burial would have been a great misfortune. So he sees the wicked, they're buried. Uh, they have people remembering them or, or praising them or, or giving condolences in their death. But notice what else is wrong with this picture. This is more specific. He says, during their life, what does he say? They used to go in and out of the holy place. Now let's pause there for a moment. They used to go in and out of the holy place. What is the holy place you think Solomon has in mind? He could be referring to Jerusalem. That was known as the holy city. But more specifically, the holy place would have been the temple and its courts, the place that was God's house in the Old Testament. 
And so this kind of points something out to us about this. What do you find with this? These wicked people were in and out of the holy place, which means they had some uh, religious outwardly uh, show about them. There was some kind of a religious uh, identification with them. Now, we often think of the wicked as being those that are obviously evil and greatly depraved and depraved in their actions and in their words, and, and uh, that's true. We, I think that applies. But sometimes evil people walk right into the church house and back out into the, out into the world. You know that, right? Just because someone is religious and comes to the house of God does not make them righteous, does not make them right with God even. Many have wicked hearts and still attend. Now, here's what Matthew 23, 33 says, where Jesus makes this plain about the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones that all of Israel looked up to as the religious leaders. He, He says this to them. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape the sentence to hell? You think about that. Jesus is telling the religious leaders, you all are a bunch of vipers. They're the ones who were, who were leading the Jews in their religion. They were praised in the city uh, with things that they were doing, right? The Pharisees did. This is a religious example. And so likewise, Jesus says to those same religious leaders in that same chapter, Matthew 23, 5, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. You know, Jesus is essentially warning his disciples, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because they, they teach a lot, but they don't live what they teach. They do not practice what they preach. Their hearts were wicked and corrupt. That happens a lot even in our modern-day uh, Christian culture. But notice also, I think, with this, that it's not just those who mask their wickedness with religion who receive praise. It's even those who are just outright evil in their works who receive praise. We, we see this in our world. Solomon briefly mentions this observation again in verse 12. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. He's he's speaking about those who are doing evil and seem to be just doing great in life, right? Just take a look at our cultural landscape in our own country. The multitudes that praise politicians because they fight for our right to have abortions. You realize that that is a proclamation of evil. It is praise of evil. The same thing for those who push for the LGBTQ agenda, right? So, so you have these leaders and these different people who, who advocate and, and they're praised by multitudes for their position on these things. This is outward praise of the wicked. Now for us who know the true God and what righteousness is, we sometimes wonder, how long will the wicked be praised? How long will the wicked continue in what seems to be uh, their, their advancement, right? It's a conflict that we all see and Solomon saw in his own day and time. And notice what he says about this as he concludes that observation. He says this also is vanity. It, it's, a vex, it's a vexation to him, uh, but it's a vexation that will pass like the breath that we breathe out, right? It ultimately is not going to last forever. Notice with me, letter B, notice the second thing he sees in his conflict. Not only does he see that wicked people are praised, but he also sees that true justice is lacking. True justice is lacking. Now, what is justice exactly? It is righteous judgment executed on wickedness. Those who are 
caught and convicted according to the law, and in particular, God's law in Solomon's day. But notice verse 11. I think you'll see a correlation of this even to our day, today's culture. Verse 11, Solomon presents another important point. He says, because the sentence of an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, think about it. What happens when a person does something wrong and gets away with it? What does that do for them in their heart and in their mind? They are more prone to do what is wrong again and more likely to do it even to a greater degree because they think, I got away with it. Or they think that, well, punishment really isn't that serious for this. I don't think I'm going to have to deal with it, right? Now, you can apply this to various areas of life. And I I often use the example of children because I'm raising young kids, right? And uh, I'm glad I was never a preacher kid because I pick on mine all the time, right? And uh, my mom was a preacher's kid and several others have been. They make good illustrations, but... As a parent, you ever had your child what I could do what I call testing the boundaries? Testing the boundaries, right? Mine are good at that. Now, I'm convinced Spurgeon has been throwing away some of my golf balls. I, I keep a few in my office on the ground because I got one of those little putting things at home, and every now and then if I take a break, I'll get up and hit a few putts, right? And I had a few good tailor-made golf balls in there, and they just suddenly disappeared. I thought, well, maybe he just put them somewhere in the house. No, they're gone. Well, he's been putting them in the trash can. And I don't know they're in there, and so guess what Dad does? I take out the trash. And so I figured out he was doing that and began to teach him, don't put these in the trash can. Well, not long after that, he knew what I was talking about. Don't do this. And uh, we're sitting in my office, and he picks up the golf ball, and he's slowly walking over where the trash can is, and he pauses, and he just looks at me. <laughs> and you know what he's doing, right? He's testing the boundaries. He's testing. Hmm, what's that going to do? So I say, Spurgeon, don't you do it. Don't you put that in the trash can. And so he kind of got the picture. He doesn't do that anymore. Uh, but uh, that's just one silly example. But every single one of my kids have tested the boundaries in one way or another. That's the nature of children, right? That's what they do, okay? They want to see how far they can go before real correction is going to be given, right? Well, that's a simple example, but what Solomon says here goes deeper than that. He's talking about adults in the real world who take advantage of the lack of a sentence upon an evil deed being executed speedily. Now, so when someone breaks the law and they're caught and they're convicted, they are guilty, They should receive the just punishment for that. There should not be delay. There should not be just a smack on the hand say, don't do that ever again. There should be proper judgment. And so it should be carried out quickly unless there's sufficient reason for it to be delayed. Now, maybe I'm wrong in my perception of this, but often there are people who have killed multitudes of other people and they sit on death row for 20 years. Now, I personally have a problem with that. Because the death penalty, it is a biblical teaching. It's a biblical doctrine. Uh, But often, it's it's just extended, extended, extended. What does that do? It just shows people, well, you know what? I can get away with killing people, and I'll still have another 20 years. And I'll just be in a comfortable prison and, you know, have everybody else pay for my food and and lodging and everything else in the sun. The same thing goes further than that, especially as as we came through 2020 and, and 2021. What did we see a lot of? We saw a lot of rioting and looting and thievery, right? And it still goes on today in certain areas. 
I see videos on, 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 on the internet all the time where, where, where four or five people will just march into a store in the mall, take everything they want, just march right out, and nobody does anything about it. Even law enforcement doesn't do much about it. What does that do? That encourages the idea that I can just break the law and do whatever I want, and there's not going to be any kind of repercussions or, or problems, with, problems with this. So, so this, this is the problem that Solomon is pointing out to us, is that because sentences and judgment is not carried out, there's not justice, it just in, encourages an environment of rebellion, of lawlessness, and anarchy. And so that's why law is so important, right? We saw the whole push to defund the police. That was a big, big slogan among many people, right? That does nothing but advocate for lawlessness. Advocate for lawlessness. All of that's based on false pretenses and inward lusts for lawlessness. So when law and order fail to be carried out, that's the culture it invites. And so so Solomon says here, notice he, he gives us the root issue here. He says, when this happens... The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, he's encouraged that I'm just going to go do the evil that I want to do. And this is the heart of the issue, right? The heart of the problem in all of this really is the problem of the heart. Man naturally does evil altogether because man's heart is wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, some translate sick as wicked, which it conveys really the same meaning, that it's, that it's depraved it's, it, and, and it's sick with sin. But the heart is deceitful above all things. The problem of humanity is what's inside of humanity. It's his sin nature. Now, I point this out, that we know that it is not the law of the land that changes the heart. It's not the law of the land or the law even of God that changes the heart. The gospel of Christ is what changes the heart. Only the gospel, only Jesus can change the heart. You see, only what God does in His grace can bring us to have a new heart, remove our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh that beats according to what God wants. But what we do see is that the law, especially the law of God in Solomon's context, What does the law do publicly? It is publicly meant to restrain evil while also pointing man to their need of salvation. That's what the law is intended to do. Galatians 3.24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law points us to Christ because we are law breakers and Christ is the only law keeper. He's the only one who kept it perfectly and died on behalf of our wickedness. So when evil is not restrained by law and justice, then evil is encouraged, leading leading further wicked men to their own destruction and to the despair and leading really to the demise of a city or nation. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 26.10 in context of Israel and their their wickedness, if favor is shown to the wicked... He does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. So you see that what Paul, Paul, what Solomon's saying here is that when justice is not executed rightly and speedily, it encourages and provokes wickedness to prevail. Now, in contrast, if justice was carried out speedily, as it should be, then wicked men would have to think twice about such evils. They commit. Doesn't mean their nature is going to change, but it does mean that there would be more order in society. 
You know, sin wouldn't be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. As soon as you commit it, there you have your wages. We don't want that. We don't want that. Now, there could be also, uh, what we find here also is that, is that um, the quicker the execution of justice upon those who blatantly commit open evils might curb that a little bit. When I read this verse, I often think of old Barney Fife from Andy Griffith. Anybody watch Andy Griffith? He had a famous slogan. He'd always say when something needed to be done, he'd say, Andy, we got to nip it in the bud, right? You know what nip it in the bud means, right? Don't let it linger. We need to take care of it, right? And so that's what needs to happen when it comes to this passage of Scripture. Now, on another way we might look at this, there's many who blame God for the evil they see in this world and its prevalence. Why does God restrain from justice? Why doesn't he pour out his justice? Many blame God for what's lacking in the world. And we'll see that that's not, we see that why that's not the case in Scripture. But overall in this picture, this is the conflict Solomon sees with the wicked, that speedy justice is lacking. But notice with me, letter C also, we see not only that the wicked are praised and that justice is lacking, but we also see that the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper. You jump down to verse 14 and we see this communicated. There is vanity, a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are, a, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Now what Solomon says here seems to be opposite of what it should be, shouldn't it? Shouldn't the righteous receive good while the wicked receive affliction and bad? And yet it seems that God-fearing people often get the short end of the stick and endure great affliction. That's the outward perception, isn't it? All the while, the wicked are prospering. The wicked are happy. Now, this isn't just an observation of King Solomon. A man named Asaph gives a detailed description of this. I want to read this chapter to us. We're going to break it down. The next point, we'll look at another section here. But look with me at Psalm 73 for a moment in your Bible. Verse 1 down through verse 15. Just, just pay attention to his observation. It's really just giving more detail of what Solomon says here. Asaph says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now listen how he describes the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. All through this text, Asaph is communicating that he is envious at the arrogant and the wicked. He sees them prospering. He sees them getting rich. He sees them enjoying life and all the pleasures that they could have under the sun, right? 
He sees them mocking God and questioning whether God even knows about the things that they're doing. And this troubles Asaph. This is a conflict to him. This is a conflict to him. It's a genuine conflict. The wicked, bottom line here is, the wicked often get what they don't deserve and don't get what they do deserve. That's what we see. And it's the opposite often with the righteous, those who fear God in this world. And so this is what Asaph sees. This is what Solomon sees. This is what we see. We see this. Even Job asks this question in Job 21.7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? There's the question. Why does this happen? We can be thankful that that's not the end of the story. That's not the end. That's not the end all be all to what God is doing and what happens in life under the sun. That leads me to number two, and this is where we see where it is well with certain ones. Notice with me the conclusion that Solomon knows. The conclusion Solomon knows. We see the conflict he sees. Wicked are praised and so forth. But we see the conclusion he knows. And here's the conclusion. And I love this conclusion. It gives us assurance for ourselves as God's people. Letter A, it will be well for the righteous in the end. It will be well for the righteous in the end. Now, it may appear that the righteous are not in a well state in this world. But even in their not well state, as we might say, it still is well with them. We'll look into that for a moment. But come back to, up to verse 12 and notice what he see, says. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know. Here's, here's, here's inward conviction of faith in Solomon. This is not just an observation. This is something he knows in his heart by faith. He says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. So regardless of whether or not the wicked prosper in this life, who is it well with? Those who fear God. Why is it well with them? Because they fear before Him. That's the reason. Because they fear before Him. This is, understand, this is the underlying central theme of Ecclesiastes, one of them. We saw it a little earlier. We see it in the middle of the book. We're going to see it at the very end of the book. Solomon's underlying application is this. Fear God. Fear God. That is what we're called to do. That is the whole duty of man. What is it to fear God? In, in really this wisdom literature, to fear God is, uh, is, to, is to see God in His awe and holy nature. It, it sparks in us a caution that arises from realizing the greatness of God, His, His splendor, His majesty, His power, His righteousness, His justice, His holiness, all of who God is, provokes our heart to reverence Him and bow before Him and stand in awe of Him. This truly is a description of God's people who know Him. Because understand, having a true fear of God really flows out of truly knowing God. Truly knowing God as He is and as He deserves to be feared. See, they fear Him because they know Him out of His character and nature. Here's what Job says. Job 37, 22 through 24, he says, Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him 
He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Why do men fear God? Why should men fear God? Because He is the Almighty. He is this Almighty God. And He does not regard those who are proud and conceited and think they've got the world by the tail. A lot of people live that way. But you understand as a Christian who has come to know God, truly know Him, not just know about Him, but know Him inwardly in our heart, you and I know what the fear of the Lord is. How is it that we truly come to know and fear Him in our life? Well, in light of the New Testament, we know that it's only through the gospel of Christ, right? God gives His people a new heart in which they believe on Him as their Savior, as their Lord. Even in the Old Testament, understand, sinners were saved the same way they were in the the New Testament. How were sinners saved in the Old Testament? By keeping the law, by offering sacrifices? No, all of that was a byproduct and fruit of faith internally. They looked forward to the Messiah who was to come. We look backward to the Messiah who has come. Faith. Faith is where salvation rests. And all of that is the work of God's grace because of His steadfast love for His people that has changed their hearts. Psalm 118.4 Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. See, we, we who fear the Lord know the steadfast love endures forever. We've experienced it. We know that love internally. And so therefore we fear Him. And so this is Solomon's comfort and assurance to God's people in light of the enigma of all the wickedness he sees in the world. It is that it is well with those who fear God. Christian, is it well with you? Is it well with you? Do you know this? You know, we sing that beloved hymn, It is well with my soul. And the lyrics of that hymn reveal why it is well with our soul. Because of the glorious nature of God and His gospel work and what He's promised to do, what He has done, what He will do. You see, ultimately in the end, we will fully experience that glorious truth of it being well for us. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said concerning the last judgment and the separation of the righteous from the wicked, the righteous being God's people who are saved by grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. The wicked who shunned him and followed their sin and just did not, didn't, couldn't care less. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you, are who, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see God and his grace there. At the very end, come. Enter into this kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the future you and I get to look forward to as Christians. It is is something that makes us well. So we see that. But the opposite of this is letter B. It will not be well for the wicked in the end. It's not going to be well. Now, it may appear right now that things are going well for the wicked. But based on what we know in Scripture, there's no way I'd trade anything I have in Christ for what the wicked have. You you couldn't offer me 10 billion worlds of what the wicked have compared to what we have in Christ. Verse 13, he says, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So it will not be well with who? The wicked. 
Why will it not be well with them? Because he does not fear before God. The wicked think that all is well with them while they live in their wickedness in this world. You consider a lot of the rich and famous who think they have the world by the tail. They have all the toys and treasures they could ever desire. They partake in all of the sinful pleasures that are available to them. But you understand that it is not well with them. It is not well with them. Isaiah 3.11, the prophet again said, Woe to the wicked. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. You know, when you really consider the wicked and their ultimate end, who would want to be them or be like them? You know, our culture teaches, especially the younger generation, to idolize and wish to be like athletes and pop stars and, and, uh, and, and, and actors and all of the people that are out in front of the cameras, right? Do you understand that the majority of those people are some of the most wicked people living the most wicked lifestyles you could imagine? It's just not shown on TV because you've got to protect your good image, right? That's how it is. But what we find is that most of these people who are living in these wicked lifestyles, promoting wicked agendas, you understand, it appears well with them on the outside, but it is not well with them. And most of them are miserable because Solomon plainly teaches us all the pleasure and wealth we can have in the world, it doesn't satisfy our soul. It does not. So Solomon says plainly in Proverbs 24, 19, and 20, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now look again at what Asaph says. I wanted to conclude that with what he said in his narrative. I didn't want you to think that that was all that Asaph said. You read through further in the chapter in verse 16 through verse 20 and notice this. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He went to where truth is, God, and he was able to discern the end of the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So he discerns their end, sees how short their life is. Even though they try to prolong their days like a shadow, all of man's natural days are like a shadow, but the wicked are always seeking to extend their life, right? Solomon says they won't do it. And even beyond the grave, you understand, the wicked beyond the grave, they do not enter into eternal life, but rather they plunge themselves headlong into eternal death because of their judgment on their sin, the final judgment that they're worthy of. So the Christian here, you see, this, is, this Christian is where our faith must foremost be, be, be solidified and resting. It is in God and His goodness and His grace and fearing Him. Not letting everything in the world deter us from that. So that brings me to number three. Notice with me the conduct Solomon gives. Very quickly, the conduct Solomon gives. These are very plain. One of them we've already touched on, so we won't spend much time here. But here's the first thing we need to do. We need to fear God in light of God's justice. That looks like in our world there's not much justice on the wicked. It looks like the wicked get away with everything. But here's what we glean from this text is that fearing the Lord is foremost 
and that God will execute justice in the end. But here's, here's, here's our responsibility. We want it to be well with us, with God, right? Do you want it to be well with you? Then fear God. Don't fear man. Don't fear the culture. Fear God. See God for who He truly is. Worship Him for who He truly is. Trust Him in all that He has said. Follow Him in all that He has commanded. He is God and you are not. Asaph closed the psalm in Psalm 373, kind of communicating that. I won't go there for time's sake, but he, he reveals a heart that fears the Lord. Fears the Lord and trusts in the Lord. And, and so you think about us, Christian. Who do we have as Christians in this world other than the Lord? You understand that there's one person in our life that we can truly depend on to the very end. Even our family will fade. Those we love and are nearest to us in our life, even our family will fade as much as we love them and may trust them in certain things. The Lord is the only constant in our life. He is to be feared and trusted. He is with reverence Him because we are His redeemed people. But here's letter B. Here's a different aspect that Solomon brings out that may seem odd at first. We are to live joyfully in light of God's goodness. Live joyfully in light of God's goodness. This is where we see verse 15. This may seem odd and out of place, but nevertheless, Solomon points this out, and he's already pointed it out. This, he says in verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Just like fearing the Lord is an undergirding theme in Ecclesiastes, so is this. Enjoy life under the sun. That doesn't mean go off and enjoy sinful pleasures, but enjoy life, the good gifts God has given us. He says to eat and drink and be joyful. God doesn't want our life to go from beginning to end and just be this miserable burden with all the vanity we see under the sun. See, despite all the vanity under the sun, all the prospering of the wicked, all the suffering of the righteous, the lives of God's people should still be enjoyed. How can that be? Because joy and happiness, you understand, they're not found in circumstances or material. True joy and happiness is found in knowing God, knowing Christ and seeing all the goodness of God that He has given us in all the little things of life. We ought not to take for granted the little things. Every meal you eat, every glass of water you drink, this very moment of being among the people of God in an air-conditioned building, being able to worship Him and read His Word and pray. You got in a car to drive here, that's a gift of God. You got clothes on your back, that's a gift of God. You have a hobby you get to enjoy. That's a gift of God. God wants us to enjoy life and the good gifts that He's given us. And so Paul says this to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know what he doesn't say? Rejoice when it's good. He says rejoice always in the Lord. Not sometimes or most times, but always. And Paul rightly says this. He's writing this from prison. He writes the most joyful letter in all of the Bible while he's sitting in prison in chains. And I don't know that I would be prone to be doing that, but he is. Because God's using him as an example for us. Paul knew what suffering and affliction were in life under the sun. If anyone knew it was him, yet he writes this joy-filled letter and says to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord 
always. And again, I say rejoice. He repeats what he's saying. His joy was not in his circumstance or suffering, but in Christ. Even in such times, even in such times of suffering, let's say we do go through a time of suffering, do you not have anything to rejoice in? Has your suffering changed your eternal destiny in Christ? Nope. Has it changed the fact that you're living and breathing? Nope. Has not God's goodness still overflowed towards us as His people? And here's the contrast here in light of what Solomon's all said. What good does it do us to constantly ponder and fret about the wicked who do not get the justice they deserve in this life? Why should I live miserably worrying about all the wicked in the world when God wants me to live joyfully and happily in Him? He'll take care of them. I just need to focus on Him. That's what it boils down to. What good does it do us to constantly ponder and fret about every bad thing that happens to us? much. See, life is too short not to enjoy it and to have great joy in life and all of God's goodness despite these things that we see in life because we have the one true God as our God. He loves us. His presence is with us. And He has promised good. He has promised it will be well for us in the end. So I think there's great observation here, great reminder, especially for us in our own culture today. It may not appear that all is well here and now, but you understand that all is going to be well in the end for God's people. And if you really get down to the nitty-gritty of who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, even if we are going through a hard time, it still is all is well with us because of who we are in Christ. So we need to fear Him, we need to rejoice in Him, and we need to trust Him in what happens in the story of history. Because we're not, we're not left on a cliffhanger to find out later. He's already given us the end. He's already told us what's coming, and so we rejoice in that. So I pray these truths have been some kind of an encouragement and blessing to you tonight.